Hello, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, The Heart Guy, and I welcome you to another exciting and informative podcast titled The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter, bringing you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast, important subject of heart disease, heart failure, and organ donation, and everything related to that in today's ever-changing world. I'm extremely honored to have as my special guest today an inspiring leader in our global health community, Michael R. Godet. Michael is an artist and entrepreneur who gained much notoriety with his first important mural commission at St. Mary's Basilica in Halifax at the age of 21. Following in the footsteps of his Renaissance heroes, he made a decision to carry on with mural painting as well as paintings on canvas. Sixty-odd large-scale murals later, he is continuing to grow and expand his horizons. Growing disillusioned with commercial galleries in 2009, Michael and his wife Sharon decided to open their own gallery at their home in the resort village of Manitou Beach, Saskatchewan, where they both enjoyed high-quality exposure on their own terms. Michael has written and published his first two books of memoirs called Dancing with Rejection, A Beginner's Guide to Immortality, and A Work in Progress, The Life My Brother Saved. These books feature a backdrop of struggle with chronic kidney disease and Michael's recovery after a kidney transplant in 1979. The writing spirals out from there to explore his rise to prominence as a mural painter in Canada. Michael's paintings, murals, and books can be viewed at mrgaudet.com. That's M-R-G-A-U-D-E-T.com. Michael, welcome to the heart of the matter. Thank you, Gary. It's a real honor and privilege to be here. Yeah, sure. So um, when when did you first know that you had a problem with your kidneys uh, or that you indeed had kidney disease? I was absolutely out of the loop. My, uh, one of the in most insidious things about kidney failure is that the uh, buildup of toxins, thanks to the to your kidney lack of kidney function, they actually uh, end up circulating in your brain. So you're you're you end up with extreme brain fog and really a complete unawareness of your of your own surroundings and your own health picture. So I was blissfully unaware of the fact that I was so sick until I was admitted into Sunnybrook Medical Center in Toronto. All of a sudden, they said to me, you know what, you have chronic end-stage renal failure. And to me, it was almost a uh, relief because I had felt so lousy for so long, but never really knowing why, suddenly there was something I, I could uh, put a name to. So that, that was when I found out when I was admitted into emergency. Wow, that's so interesting. And before we go any further, I'd like to provide some clarity about what dialysis is, because I think we're going to speak about that for a little while. And so by definition, dialysis is a life-saving treatment for countless patients who have end-stage kidney failure and have not yet found a donor. Dialysis helps to take over some of the functions of healthy kidneys, allowing the body to continue working even during end-stage kidney failure. And these functions include removing waste, salt, and excess water to prevent buildup, controlling blood pressure, and maintaining a safe level of specific chemicals in the body, including potassium and bicarbonate. And so while dialysis is a life-saving treatment for countless patients who have end-stage kidney failure and have not yet found a donor, you speak about the dangers of dialysis. What, from your vantage point, are the dangers of dialysis? Well, you know, I don't want to cast a gloomy picture on dialysis because really it is uh, an extremely powerful life-sustaining treatment for people with end-stage renal failure. 
But yeah, like you say, there are dangers. Probably the most obvious one is when uh, there is an attempt to take off too much fluid too quickly. Your body ends up uh, cramping really severely. And of course, it strains the heart when you have the big fluctuations in fluid. Uh, you know, so in between dialysis therapy, it's extremely intelligent to not overindulge in fluid intakes. You're on a real restricted fluid, I'll use the word again, intake. Uh, so the dangers are, to begin with, too much fluid taken off too quickly. That's so hard on the heart. Uh, and you also have to be very compliant with the meds that you're taking while on dialysis because dialysis is not terribly selective in what it removes from your bloodstream, the uh, chemical constituents. I mean, sure, it will remove the extra potassium that is deadly. It'll, it'll shut your heart down in a minute if you have too high potassium on board because it's one of those electrolytes that controls your proper rhythm, rhythm of heartbeats. That's, that's a good thing. It also, kind of control, it also will control the amount of sodium, which, of course, would lead to hypertension, high blood pressure. And, I'll, and again, it will remove, hopefully, the correct amount of fluid. But on the other hand, uh, it will remove beyond the, the constituents it's designed to remove, uh, like, say, calcium and a few others. So you really have to be mindful of taking your vitamin and mineral supplements while mm-hmm. you're on dialysis. Otherwise, you will not do well. Yeah, it's such a such a complex issue. Uh, so many things going on during that dialysis. I read about a few others. I don't know if you experienced these, but MRIs. I understand that dialysis patients do not remove the contrast agent fast enough. It becomes toxic for you. It can ultimately poison you if you're on dialysis. Again, I think it, it's really what you're doing when you're not on dialysis, and then the dialysis just kind of can't keep up with it. Yeah, I, I yeah. believe. I'm not sure if dialysis in and of itself it can be toxic. There is an element of validity to that because when you're getting dialysis, you need to have a dialysate, which is a liquid that goes into the stream. And that's the liquid that by osmosis will, is that the right word, will remove the chemicals yeah. that you don't yeah. want in your body. And sometimes that liquid, uh, well, it's very rich in sugar. So the glucose has a tendency over time to actually uh, cause diabetes onset which is pretty dangerous. And also, the, all the extra fluid will ultimately cause you to gain extra weight. So it's, it's a delicate balancing act, Gary. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. And as you have to be careful. I mean, you've been talking about being careful with what you, what you eat and what you drink, but also infection. I think there's an access point where you have to be careful not to sleep on the arm of your access and things like that, too. Yeah. Well, have you ever slept with a baby? Uh, like your your firstborn or whatever, you know what? You very rarely roll over and kill the baby. Yeah. So it's like pretty much automatic that you are going to just instinctively protect that arm with your fistula in the arm. Uh, right. You know, in my case, my alert is when my arm uh, rests on my pillow and it sounds like a, like a train coming through a tunnel. It's <laughs> like you can really, really hear that extra pressure of blood flowing through the fistula and it amplifies when it's anywhere near your ears on your pillow or whatever so you just automatically move your arm away because it's i mean even now my uh fistula was initiated way back in 1979 and uh even now all these years later it's still up and running and so i've never been without a fistula since i was 21 years old and i'm 
63 now, yeah. going on 63. So you kind of develop that sixth sense about your fistula, and you just automatically learn to protect it. But it is a yeah. question people ask. You know, people that are just getting on dialysis and have their new fistula, they ask, like, can I sleep on this wrong and wreck it? You know what I mean? Right. That's, 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 that's a question. And uh, yeah. it, it can cause some stress because it, right. it can be very delicate at, at the beginning. Yeah, at the beginning, yeah. And I, and, and by, I by no means compare my LVAD to dialysis because uh, there is no comparison there. But, yeah, you get, you know, you get used to having it. And I do uh, roll over on the wires once in a while and I'm aware of it. And then I just move those over. It becomes sort of our new normal, if you will, unfortunately. That is exactly right. Uh, yeah, new so normal. you get used to those things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah so, valid point, um, though. Valid point, Gary. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So on the contrary, I mean, the, the 12 hours a week of me time uh, you suggested that you had on dialysis resulted in the publication of your first two books. How and where did you make time to write? Well, first of all, I have to back up a little bit and say that when I was growing up, like even from about age 15 onward, I would basically continuously make little notations uh, for our listeners that are old enough to, re to remember uh, cursive longhand on loose leaf. That's a mouthful. Uh, so I would do that. You know, every every time something significant happened, I would just make a little notation to the potentially future author. Uh, and then this added up. Over the years, I, I did, probably had around, oh, I don't know, maybe 150 or so pages of just these notes that, that were more or less in chronological order. So when I was on dialysis, I resolved, I will take all these handwritten notes and I'll transcribe them onto my laptop which is what i mm -hmm. did to start and you know those little notes were prompters for, to to rekindle those memories and they it just all the fill-in just kind of flowed from those little notations and my, my frame of mind on dialysis was uh and this is the second time around by the way i was on dialysis in 1979 for only seven yes. months before i received a transplant from my brother mm -hmm. which lasted for over 34 years However, in my second time around, which started in 2014, uh, it, I was on dialysis for five long years before I ended up with my second transplant. Wow. So during that five years, Gary, I can honestly say there were days that I thought to myself, am I even going to survive this long enough to get a transplant? Because it is dangerous. And one of the things that I was experiencing for quite a while before I got a, a hold of the reins was uh, really severe hypertension, a.k.a. high blood pressure, that landed me in emergency with horrible headaches. And mm. we just couldn't, couldn't, the doctors just couldn't understand what was going on for, well, 13 trips later to emergency until they finally figured it out that I really had to get my blood pressure under control. Dialysis wasn't doing it for me. Again, hard on the heart, right? Um, mm. And so once they got it under control, I started feeling better. And so most days I was actually feeling, you know, relatively good and lucid on dialysis. So I thought to myself, am I going to, A, am I going to even survive dialysis? And B, maybe I should just, you know, stop making excuses and buckle down and write the write this first book that I, that I had in the back of my mind for so many years. It's one of those, you hope you're going to get around to it, but I never quite did because life got in the way. So yeah. that was my opportunity. I had, like you say, four hours, three times a week of me time. Just mm -hmm. me and my machines, dialysis machine and my laptop. And so I had the, t I had the time and I had the uh, determination, let's put it that way. 
because I wanted to come out with a calling card to the universe, not even knowing if I would be alive to enjoy it or, or appreciate mm. the results. So yeah. I can tell you right now that creating the uh, manuscript and getting it proofread and then ultimately published was a really large undertaking, for, whether you're on dialysis or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so I felt like a re it was a really thrilling experience to hold those first few copy proofs in my hand. It was a phys physical manifestation of what I had wanted to do for so long. And let's face it, you don't, you know, tomorrow is never guaranteed. So mm -hmm. that was my motivation, just thinking I got to do something to mark my place on this planet that I was here in my lifetime. Yeah, and it is quite an achievement and congratulations for that. Thank you, Gary. Yeah, and, and you're right. I, I suppose it's like having a conversation while you're driving uh, on the phone in the car. It passes the time more quickly yes. uh, with something that you'd rather not be paying uh, focus to uh, the dialysis itself, that is, while you're sitting there for four hours. That's an excellent point. Yeah, and, and it's good. It's it's very useful uh, way to spend the time. So well done. That, that's terrific. You had So you had to, two kidney transplants 40 years apart pretty much. Did dialysis change during that time? So I guess uh, I mean to ask, what were the similarities of these experiences and what were the contrasts? I remember back in 1979 going for dialysis at Sunnybrook Medical Center in Toronto. And my memory of it is that they were very high-tech machines for that time. They're all computerized. They must have had the most advanced technology on the planet channeled into that therapy. You know, they had the, they had the fairly compact machine. They had all like a keyboard on there for, for programming the different settings and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, nowadays, it's, it's maybe, let's say, more streamlined. But you know what, Gary, I don't want to say this, out, say this too loud, but we'll, I'll share it with you. And the only thing that's changed is the technicians. Yeah. They're either excellent or they're in a hurry or distracted. So first of all, the, 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 my biggest challenge really in, in 2014 was um, needling. Uh, I, allow, I allowed the, the nurses to needle me for the first several months, and there's the thing called a blow, and that's when you, the needle uh, infiltrates the fistula, mm -hmm. and the, the, the area around it swells up, and then the next day it's black and blue. That happens so much be, just because, you know, it's hard to needle a dialysis patient uh, if you can't really, really see what you're doing. It's all by touch mm -hmm. and instinct and feel. Oh, I should just backtrack. This did not happen for some reason in Toronto. I never had a blow mm. the whole seven months because, I don't know, maybe it was newer. The, people were more fascinated by it and they were just meticulous or whatever. I don't know what how to explain the difference. But after a few months in 2014, I decided, well, you know what? I'm just going to start needling myself because I'm sure I can do better than this. Wow. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, my arm was black and blue like somebody took a baseball bat to it from the blows. Yeah. It happened almost every, almost every time <laughs> there was a blow. And so uh, infiltration. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to needle myself, self-cannulation. Mm -hmm. uh, and the most stressful part of that was the night before I started. I don't think I slept a wink because I didn't have any training. <laughs> I just went ahead and I kind of did what... I knew what not to do. Yeah. And so the first time I tried it, it was just smooth as silk. And I could feel it. I knew where the needle was. I could feel how it was it was doing in the in the fistula. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that, I had zero blows for the rest of the five years wow. because I did my own needling. But there's only two people on the whole ward that would needle themselves. Hmm. Uh, 
it's just, I don't know what, nerve-wracking or whatever, but I thought, I gotta take control of this and stop the the uh, infiltrations. Yeah. You know, I just that's just the kind of guy I am, and I never really looked back. And uh, the nurse was absolutely flabbergasted when they when she realized I didn't have any training. Because the first time I did it, she asked, well, who trained you? You did a great job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in my mind, I was thinking, uh, this is what I know what not to do. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's a long answer to a, to a succinct question. Yeah, I, I very much understand it. it. It's along the line of self-advocacy, which we have to have nowadays, too. Yes. And there certainly is a difference between one nurse and the other and one doctor and the other. And we yeah. have to be mindful of it because we have to take care of ourselves and our treatment. So that's I think right. that sort of goes along with that. This is just another example of that. Right. Not to suggest that there aren't excellent nurses and doctors. But you know, as a dentist, I gave 250,000 injections in my career. And so when my blood is taken, I know when somebody's a little heavy-handed and when they're not. I happen to know right. that because I can tell the difference. <laughs> So, yeah, you know. Yeah, so you know what you know. <laughs> um, you know what you know. Yeah, very interesting. You are most known, certainly locally, as a murals painter. Please share with me what you think is the power of painting for yourself and for the public, and specifically for kidney advocacy community. Well, one of my first uh, important, in air quotes, murals was was at Sunnybrook Medical Center. When I was on dialysis at Sunnybrook, I had a little brown sketchbook that I drew in every day. And the technicians and the nurses and doctors noticed this as they turned over an unused conference room to me as a studio while I was in the hospital. I was I was admitted for like three or four months hmm. to get me back on my feet. And so I used this studio and they even supplied me with all my art supplies. So uh, I thought to myself, okay, here's a good chance to thank Sunnybrook for such excellent care and so I made this kind of crude rendering of a patient starting off in bed getting up to a wheelchair to crutches to cane and then walking off the edge of the canvas and when they get when the patient gets stronger uh, and more lucid the colors get richer and and more powerful of the figure so that was a that was a, one of my first murals and that has kind of been revisited and and uh, reiterated several times since then mm. So that was, to me, that was just a way to express my, my deep appreciation to the hospital. Of course, I donated it to them. Uh, that's one uh, reason why murals can be powerful. Uh, and I'm sure thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people have seen that in the interim. Hmm. And, you know, maybe it just gives them a little boost that they too can recover from whatever they're going through. It's like a visual prayer for everyone's uh, recovery and everyone's health, yeah. to, you know, kind of universally. Then beyond that, I just started to think to myself after the mural that you mentioned at at, uh, St. Mary's Basilica, uh, this is a couple of years after my transplant, so I was pretty mentally astute and feeling quite physically good and vibrant. I created this mural and it got so much publicity and created so much notoriety for me that I thought, okay, I've landed. This This is my wheelhouse. And it began to dream and scheme of many more murals. And then after several years of that, people started approaching me. And so now I've done some big murals, like the last mural I painted was uh, 96 by 12 feet. It's a historic overview of, of, of the town of Tisdale here in Saskatchewan, wow. birthplace of the famous comedian Brent Butt. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of him in the States or not, but he's pretty well known. Anyway, he's kind of personified life-size in one of four figures in, the, in that particular mural. But it, it's, uh, you know, everybody that's in the town sees it. 
And of course, I've got my website on the lower right hand side and, and, you know, it generates positive publicity, not only for me, but also for the town. And there, and that just, it's like a continuous snowball effect building over the years. And so I guess my latest design that I'm quite happy with is a stainless steel work of art that was, was uh, partially funded by Heritage Canada in Ottawa here in Canada. And it uh, was done to, to uh, commemorate the centennial of Resort Village of Manitou Beach, where my wife Sharon and I live. Ooh. That's overlooking the lake, at, and now it's become like kind of an organic uh, attraction for people. They, people just go there and sit and relax and enjoy the view and they enjoy kind of contemplating what design means it's very kind of it's like a an invitation just to relax and chill out and reflect on on your life and and, and your place in the world wow. very satisfying project yeah. and now of course we're just uh entertaining a couple more more mural projects i mean they're they're kind of on a continuous cycle but uh Every time I have a mural project, I get just excited like a kid in the candy shop, yeah, I'll tell you. That's great. It never loses its impact. Yeah, we, my wife and I were down in Miami. Uh, there's a neighborhood down there where the murals are, are drawn on the sides of the buildings. And I was wondering, how difficult is it to gain permission to paint on the sides of side of a building? And who needs to approve those? Well, you know, something that usually it's the business owner. Yeah, like maybe the uh, owner of the building. Mm -hmm. Or it can be like... In a lot of cases, the community itself will rally their resources to generate a mural project, and then they'll select a wall and negotiate with the owner, and it's kind of all intertwined. Yeah. I think I've seen pictures of some of those big murals in Miami. Some of them are like a whole city block yeah, Absolutely, long. yeah. They're some of the biggest murals on the planet, I'm thinking. Yeah, I took a bunch Miami. of pictures of them. I think they're on my phone. I'll send them to you if I can find them. That'd be <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. So you, you spoke before about your book being a calling card to the universe. You also say you must howl to find your pack. Can you elaborate on that, particularly as it relates to people uh, in the kidney donor advocacy community as well? Well, you know, when I was working on that first book, uh, Dancing with Rejection, A Beginner's Guide to Immortality, I actually uh, fleshed out the uh, subtitle in the book. And if you can suspend your disbelief and go with what I'm suggesting, you will read pretty hardcore proof of, uh, in air quotes, life after death. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that's an element of the book. Another element is, I believe in the, con the continuum of human existence. And I also believe that when somebody, say, passes, if they have touched enough people in a positive way, then their memory will live on and therefore they will. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's kind of part of it. And also I was thinking while I was writing it, this is really a, a book that's designed for people that have time on their hands and that, that they want to do something more than just maybe plug into, into TV or something. Mm -hmm. It's personally aimed at, let's say, dialysis patients. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we ha goodness knows we have some spare time. But not, not only that, but really it's a, a, quite a large spectrum of people that will enjoy it. It actually uh, outlines some of the machinations behind uh, some of my earlier uh, big mural projects. Mm -hmm. So it's like a how-to guide for aspiring artists in a way, or else even people that are interested in the process of just of building a career. Like an, it's like almost a bit of an alternative career. Mural painting and art in general is not exactly a mainstream career that you can draw a pension yeah, or, right. you know, there's not a whole lot of security to it. You have to invent your own day every day. Mm -hmm. So you're in charge of your own schedule. And if you're good at that, then you can be very successful. So that's a part of it as well. 
But more than anything else, I'm trying to sell the idea that we're more than just 80-year lifespan and then we're gone forever. I'm trying to sell the idea in this book that there's more to life. I, I don't profess to have answers, more questions than answers. Mm -hmm. But all I can do is share my life experiences that, to me, point you in that direction of, of believing that there's something bigger and more amazing and glorious than just physical existence. Not to say that physical existence is, isn't a miracle in itself, mm -hmm. because anybody that's struggled with near-death experiences will tell you that life is a precious thing to be just savored and deeply appreciated. I mean, every day you wake up, you see the sun rise, and you think, well, glorious day this is. Yeah. Let's make the best of it. You know, because we don't know what happens after we leave here. But you, if you have done things uh, in your present life that you know will be meaningful to people when you're gone, that's that's pretty much enough too. I mean, that, that's a pretty good plan as well without knowing what, you know, what happens after we leave here. I think that's exactly right, Yeah, Gary. so I know, you know, we talk about happiness and chasing happiness, but I think if we chase meaningfulness, it's a lot more of a richer life. I think I yes. found that uh, the people that I've, I've come to know in this, certainly in this circle, uh, seem to be on the same page with me regards that. So, and they seem to be pretty happy uh, in helping others and serving others one way or the other, whether it's a mural or a book or a podcast or anything else. You know, I think that it makes for a better life and hopefully will live on in the eyes of the people that come after. That is very true. Astute observation. <laughs> so now that you've received your kidney transplant, can you contrast your overall health between life on dialysis and life with a kidney transplant? your stamina, your mental acuity, and so forth. Well, there's no, no assurances that your days between dialysis are going to be great. For, for starters, you have such a stringent diet, you got to really avoid those potassium foods. And man, there's a lot of foods that are rich in potassium that you have to really be careful with. One of my nurses when I was in Toronto told me a story when I was on dialysis. It was a warning, what do you call that, a, a cautionary tale. <laughs> she said, oh, this young man, he was 17 years old, on dialysis. His dad came, picked him up, and went, they went to a baseball game, and they had the time of their lives. Mm -hmm. And during the game, the young man had not only one, but two hot dogs, mm -hmm. and uh, he had died of a heart attack oh, yeah. because he had too much potassium oh, on board. My, yeah. She said, that's how serious this is. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, that's a good illustration of what not to do. Yeah. So then you start doing your research and your homework and finding out. Well, I mean, the dietitian's a big help, too, but you need to know in your daily life what not to eat and what you can safely eat, because it can sneak up on you during a day, a day of regular dining. You think you're going to be okay, and then you might eat one extra tomato or something. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's uh, there's so many foods that are high in potassium, and the same with salt. When you don't have good kidney function, salt is your enemy, yeah. and that includes hidden salts. Mm -hmm. I would say between dialysis days, it was 50-50 whether you're going to feel good or not. I mean, you could, you could end up going back to dialysis just a wreck. Because, oh, you had one glass of water too much. Wow. And all of a sudden, you're like short of breath mm -hmm. and your ankles are swollen up. And, you know, when you're puffing for breath just to get from up to the car, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But now, after my transplant, I love drinking as much water as I That's want. Great. It's like it's like a sensual uh thrill <laughs> yeah. just to be able to chug a lug water. And, and actually, you're encouraged to keep your kidneys swimming. That was the expression my surgeon used. So, I mean, I must drink three or four liters of water every day. Wow. And, and I just love it. I just love drinking water. That sensation of it going 
cool water just going down your throat is something you don't get on dialysis. Wow. You can drink while you're on dialysis, I guess, but you still don't want to overdo yeah. it. I mean, really. The things we take for granted. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to give a plug uh, just along those lines about the potassium because we don't realize how much we're taking in. But back a ways, I think it's in season two. I interviewed Leslie Hanselman. She's a retired nurse practitioner who had a stroke. And after that, she invented an app that you can download on your phone, uh, which is called the Cormium app. And the Cormium app can keep track of the potassium and the fluid intake that you have when you enter the foods you eat. That information can be transferred directly to your doctor. So there's actually That's an really app on the phone. Yeah, it's super. So I wanted to give her some props for that because uh, she made the same remark. Excellent we don't realize how much potassium we're taking in. Exactly, yeah. The worst, the worst offenders are things that are concentrated. Like, like a fresh tomato has about the same amount of potassium as a fresh apple, which is on the low side. But you take a tablespoon of ketchup, and suddenly you're talking about a mean amount of potassium because wow. it's all concentrated, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So those are the things that you have to be concerned about. Same as potatoes. I mean, there is a way to reduce the potassium in potatoes just by soaking them ahead of time in some salty water. The salt sucks the potassium out of the potatoes to a large degree. And then you simply uh, rin rinse the salt and water off, cook them. doesn't change the texture or the taste of potatoes, but it extracts a lot of the potassium. Yeah. Okay, that's a, that's a safe way. But go, go ahead and have a plate of French fries. And you're looking at a, a large load of potassium there. Yeah, we've got to really watch it. So could you uh, finally uh, please share more about your kidney support group? including, you know, how, how people may join and so forth. We'll, of course, put that information in the podcast notes, but I want you to talk about that a little bit. Okay, well, the year before I finished dialysis, so that would be 2013, I was on for about five years. Sorry, I'm going to back up. This was the year before I started dialysis. I was into the year 34 of my first transplant. My wife suggested, why don't you start a kidney support group on Facebook and then pick people's brains that have been out longer than you have to find out how to carry on with your posterity of your kidney. Because at that point, I was the longest uh, living transplant recipient in Western Canada uh, at 34 years. We started a little group called, well, kidney support is, is the first two words, and that's all you really need to find it on Facebook. And I thought when we first started the group that people that were involved in kidney disease, dialysis, probably wouldn't have the uh, psychic energy to get involved in a support group because they're all feeling so crappy like I felt at that point. But I thought, what the heck, we'll try anyway. So we did. We started this little group. My Sharon and I were the first members. And then within a one year, we had 900 members, yeah. which was amazing. But now, six or seven years later, we have about 27,000 members. And so it's a living encyclopedia of all things kidney. And boy, was I wrong about about feeling reticent about membership. People absolutely love this group. It's so community-oriented. Anybody that wants to join is welcome. All they have to do is answer three or two simple questions mm -hmm. about their kidney connection and uh, if they're willing to abide by the rules of the group. It's a closed group for medical privacy. So you can talk about medical issues without your neighbors overhearing it or whatever it's it's private that way and uh, you ask a question no matter how esoteric about kidney function or dialysis issues and you will be flooded with information from the community wow. because we are the ones living it you know i mean doctors are and nurses are very helpful of course life-saving agents but they're not actually 
in the chair hooked up to the machine or dealing with, for example, the anti-rejection drugs after a transplant. So, so we know, you know, how to answer a really delicate question. Kidney support, dialysis, transplants, donors, and recipients. Great. Okay, thank you. And I'll, again, I'll write that sure. into the notes. Thanks for that. Thank you. This has all been so wonderful. I can't wait to see your murals. And if you can shoot me a couple of photos of those, we'll put those in the notes too, if I can have it. Or even on my podcast page, maybe we can post a few of those pictures. Um, it'd be my sure great thing, honor Gary. to do that. I see we have 26.6 thousand members today. Oh my today. goodness. All right. <laughs> That's great. This has been such an honor to have you as my guest on the Heart of the Matter. And on behalf of our, uh, of our listeners and myself, I thank you so much. For all that you've done for your local community in Saskatchewan, which I hope to visit someday soon, uh, and, and in the global community. We'd love to see you. And, and also for your work in the global community with your incredibly inspiring personal story, your beautiful artwork, and with your dedication to your work in an effort to help others realize their own inner strength in the kidney donor and recipient communities. And certainly for sharing this time with me, I hope we can do this again soon. Thank you, Gary. Any new breakthroughs or exciting exciting events, I'll let you know. Yeah, all right. Thank you for that. Uh, same here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be uh, thinking about you in the uh, follow-up. You're very kind. Weeks. I'm doing fine. No worries. I'm always been good. I got good luck. So that is our podcast for today. Please join me next time for another intriguing, informative, and entertaining conversation. Please visit our podcast website. It's new um, at theheartguyspeaks.com. It'll get you right into all of the podcasts. Or I have a general website at www.drheart2heart.net. That's the number two, drheart.net, for upcoming podcasts. Or if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization. If you'd like to be a guest on the Heart of the Matter podcast, please email me at theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com. Our podcast can be found on Apple, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all you have to do is search The Heart Guy Presents The Heart of the Matter, and you will find it. Until next time, this is Dr. Gary Sherman wishing you peace and hope.